BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I think that the most common question that I I got growing up was, what are you or what's your background? I had black friends who would stop me in in the hall and be like, ask me what I am. Um, I would get that a lot. I would often get as a kid that question of what are you? Wait, are you black or something? Suddenly it's like, you know, where do I fit in? You know, who do I identify with? I was the white boy. I was Ruben the Cuban. I was Blanquito. It just depended on where I was. Those are some voices from listeners we asked to send in responses to the question, what's something only fellow mixed folks truly understand about growing up mixed race? Right, because identity is complicated. And for multiracial folks who straddle many identities, the question, what are you, is one we get our entire lives. And we're a demographic to pay attention to. The 2020 census shows a 276% increase in people who identify as multiracial. That's compared to 10 years ago. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. And today we have a special guest co-host, Marisa Lagos. She's my colleague at KQED, and you might know her as the host of Political Breakdown. Hey, Marisa. Hey, Sasha. We also have something else in common. We are both mixed race ourselves. Um, As you can tell, I have a pretty Latina sounding name, but I'm a big mix. Mexican, Armenian, English, Irish, Norwegian. Within my Mexican side, I've also got African blood and indigenous blood. So I've always been a little confused, to be honest, about my identity. Um, I grew up in San Diego, close to the border, but don't speak great Spanish. And now I have mixed-race kids of my own. My husband is a mix of European and Latin American. And so my kids have an even more complicated family history than even the one I grew up with. Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that. My dad is from India. He's Punjabi. My mom is Irish-American. They both moved to California in the 1960s because they wanted to find somewhere to live where they could feel more comfortable in a mixed marriage. And then I was born and they gave me a Russian name for some bizarre reason. But anyway, now I also have two kids who are growing up with complicated mixed identities. They are Punjabi, Irish, Mexican, Japanese. And Sasha, when we were growing up, there wasn't a lot of visibility for mixed race folks, right? You were kind of asked to decide what you were. Um, But in the last year, we've seen a lot of conversation open up about this, especially after the election of Kamala Harris as vice president. And you and I started talking about what it means to have someone like her. Mm -hmm. She's black. She's Indian. And it's groundbreaking. You just have to ask, how does America handle race? 
much less what it means to be biracial. (laughs) And, you know, having someone that visible on the national stage is exciting to a lot of people. My name is Sumaya, and I'm six years old. Kamala Harris is black and Indian. She was awesome because it felt great to have another black and Asian person. I'm mixed, and I'm proud of it. When you take a step back and realize, oh, wait, I am a full person. Like, I can be fully black and fully Filipino. When you're mixed, your parents don't get to tell you what it was like. And California is a place to tell these stories from because we're home to the largest multiracial population in the U.S. In fact, Marisa, I just found out that the longest running college course on multiracial identity is taught at UC Santa Barbara. That's my alma mater, actually. But this goes well beyond college campuses, right? This state has just a host of high-profile multiracial artists, scholars, and changemakers, everyone from our vice president to musicians like Anderson Pock. And I think what's happening is that we're getting visibility finally. Like, there's actually space now to tell the stories of mixed-race folks that really wasn't even possible even 10 years ago. My dad is a third-generation Mexican-American, and my mom is a immigrant from the Philippines who is half Chinese. I would describe growing up as mixed race as kind of confusing and complex. When I check multiple boxes, I'm always questioning if I have enough of that heritage, enough of that ethnicity to check that box. And you're in the middle of having like a mini identity crisis because you're not sure what box to check. I was happy to see Kamala Harris get elected and seeing her, you know, uh, an African-American and Asian woman was really, really cool. And a Jewish husband and a a mixed family, you know, I'm in the same situation. I have two stepkids. So it's nice to see that diversity. There's so much to explore on this topic of being mixed. I mean, questions like what is identity? How do we position ourselves? How does colorism or anti-blackness affect a sense of belonging? And what does it mean to be part of a mixed race family? We're going to kick off our show today with somebody who spent his career asking and answering the question we've all heard. What are you? My name is Kip Fulbeck, and I try to raise two kids and a dog and some fish, and I teach and surf and make art. Kip is a professor of art at UC Santa Barbara, and he's been photographing mixed-race people for more than two decades. And he's probably best known for something called the Hapa Project. Now, Hapa is a Hawaiian term to mean somebody who's racially mixed. Here in California, we tend to use it for people who have some kind of mixed Asian heritage. Right. And like a lot of things related to race, there is some baggage that comes with that word, um, which I think, you know, is not unusual. This is hard stuff. Mm -hmm. This isn't a topic we've traditionally had a lot of language or space to talk about in America. Kip has been trying to find space for years for mixed-race people to explore these questions. With this series, he took photos of people across the country from their shoulders up, you just see their faces, and then asked them to write a response in their own handwriting to the question, what are you? And he exhibited those responses next to the photos. 
I identify as being Filipino and Pakistani. Um, my family, very close. Um, we, we look Japanese, but we're all Hawaiian. Look at us. We are the mixed exhibit. Thank you. <laughs> Kip, it is so great to, to talk to you in person. When in 2006, my then boyfriend, who became my husband, and I went to the Japanese American National Museum because we were trying to get the records of his family from internment. And we happened to walk in, and your Hapa exhibit was up on the wall. Oh, you didn't know it was there? I didn't wow. know it was there. And That's the awesome. two And the two of us walked in. We're both Hapa. We're both mixed. We walked through, and we were just in stunned silence with tears just like oh, coming awesome. coming down our faces and just feeling ourselves reflected and seen in this really powerful way um, for the first time. I mean, I'm getting emotional right now. This is 14 years ago. That's the nicest thing you could say to an artist. So thank you. I, I appreciate that, but I have to sort of disclose that I feel a bit like a, like a charlatan. I mean, I, yeah, I created the project, but it's really every one of you that came in that were the geniuses. I just set up a system. Right, you know? but you turn the question around, right? Because the question is always, what are you? Yeah. And that's what we get asked, but you let people say it themselves. I definitely, I, I love seeing faces that are similar to mine. All the kids look really happy too in the picture. Seeing how they're- No one gets to tell you who you are. If you don't define yourself, people define you, and they don't do a good job of it. And it doesn't really work. So I always just say, you know, you. It's kind of your responsibility. If you don't like how you're being defined, you gotta you gotta redo that. That work started what twenty years ago, ish. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, two thousand maybe. I mean, I thought of it when I was seven, so even longer. I just didn't do it yet. <laughs> well, that was kind of my question. I mean, the world was a different place then. Like, what sounds like? Yeah, this is something that you had uh, really spent a lot of time meditating on as a kid. I wasn't thinking of doing it as an artwork. I just thought growing up, you know, because my family is like, you know, immigrant Chinese from China. And so I'm the only like Hapa kid. And then my school, I was the only Asian kid. And so I had no real cultural footing. So to me, when you get that questionnaire, you know, the check one box, which is just ridiculous. It's just still around in some places. To a seven-year-old have to pick mom or dad is not, it's not a fair question. And I remember being a little kid thinking like, well, what, do I love my dad today or my mom? And looking around and everyone else is doing it. In second grade, I was thinking, you know, it'd be kind of cool if like there were other kids like me. Kind of really, you know, made that book just for that little me. The box thing, it's so funny because like, I think one experience of being mixed is like not, is, is that idea of almost like isolation, which is ironic because you should arguably maybe feel like members of more communities. But I always felt like that too. Like I grew up in San Diego. My dad's half Mexican, but we didn't speak Spanish at home. We didn't have that. So I always felt like kind of a fraud, like if I checked the Latino box. Right. But then I felt like I was lying if I didn't. Right. You know? That's where the, the, the sting is especially poignant. That's why the first line of that first book was, you don't look Chinese. I mean, that's not coming from white people. That's coming from my sister. And that's where that's where I sort of feel like, you know, if people are defining you according to this 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 boundary that you have to be this much this, or you have to speak this language, you have to take off your shoes or whatever it is. It's like, if you're going to go off those definitions, then you're going to be in a world of hurt. You have to find your own way to define yourself. So where did you grow up, Kip? I was born in Fontana, California. Fontucky, otherwise, birthplace of the Hells Angels. And at that time, it was a steel town. My parents left me at the hospital by mistake 
they, they counted my brother and sister had gotten the car and drove off and the nurse chased after them holding me. That was my initial day. <laughs> your older siblings were also your mom and dad's kids? Or? No. So my mom was widowed twice in China. And so she came here, met my dad. He was her TA at USC. And so you're the, you're the only child of your your biological I'm the only parents. blood child of my yeah. Okay. He raised my brother and sister, but they were full blooded Chinese. So, and then all my cousins were full blooded Chinese. So I grew up in a, in a very Chinese household where Cantonese was spoken, and we we spent every weekend in Chinatown in L.A. Um, and so that's where I grew up as you know as the kind of white kid. I didn't didn't speak the language, didn't like the food, didn't get the culture. And then you know I kind of established that, and I went to school, and then I'm like the Asian kid. You know, it's like let's let's beat that Chinese kid up. And I'm like you know. I didn't even think I was the Chinese kid, you know, that I was getting beaten up. And, and I think that's why that sort, of, that sort of shifting cultural footing is what sort of really put this thing of identity into like, my consciousness. Bus stop. White boys down the street every morning beat me up every morning. I have a stomachache. I don't want to go to school. I'm sick. I'm in kindergarten. I'm only five years old. Let's make Chinamen eat wood. They put my head over a broken mailbox post, five of them. They're bigger than me. Eat wood, Chinaman. So I mean, when I did Banana movie. Split, which was my first big film, which was like the first real film to kind of deal with hop identity directly, my parents were really kind of surprised because they thought, like, we thought you had everything. We thought you had the best of both worlds. We never knew you had any of these problems. And, like, when you're mixed, your parents don't get to tell you what it was like. And he says, just a tangent here. What do you check in the ethnicity box? Chinese. Not white? No. Why not? Because I'm not white. But you're half white. I'm not white. You know, they don't get to say when I was a kid it was like this because they don't know. So are there particular moments growing up um, where you remember any visibility of mixed people, like (laughs) in popular culture? Well, the funny one that that sticks out to me as a child was, was Star Trek original series. There's a couple episodes that really stand out. They always took Spock and said, are you, are you human or Vulcan? He's like, I'm both. Being split in two halves is no theory with me, Doctor. I have a human half, you see, as well as an alien half, submerged, constantly at war with each other. Personal experience, Doctor. I survive it because my intelligence wins out over both, makes them live together. I remember being a kid going, I get that. I get that. And it's like, you know, he's not biracial, he's by species, but it was still the same kind of idea. The term half-breed is somewhat applicable. You know, it's like, what are you, you going to do? So I wanted to, like, take this idea about race and let people, you know, take their own picture. And this project gave people the avenue to actually, like, say it for themselves. I think people jumped at it. And I, I had no idea it was going to be received the way it was. I honestly just did it as a kind of, like, you know, a lark. You were letting people sort of articulate their own identity. But as you point out, race is so much about what other people think you are, not necessarily what you are. People were sick of filling out these forms. Like, you'd pick pick race, you know, please explain. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to explain. Um, I'm not going to not just not check one box. It was 2000 before we were able to even check more than one box. And it's still these ridiculous boxes. Non-Hispanic white. What does that mean? Okay, so you're white, so you're half Finnish and half Bulgarian, and that's like the same. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. You're Israeli and Italian, that's the same. You know, it just, it's just, it's ridiculous. So you started the work 20 years ago, and yeah, we've come a long way in terms of 
visibility and people being able to see themselves reflected more. Um, but still, there's some kind of a primal need for affirmation or for, right, a sense that, like, we exist. Just kinship or that you're not alone in this place. And we, we search for this thing of people that, like, share some commonality, whether it's how we look or what we eat. And I think that happens a lot when people, like, get together that are hoppers because they've never had that before. You try to go to, like, the, the Asian clubs and you're ostracized. I found that for sure. You know, either we're exotified or we are ignored or, and, and, and these are the things that I want to address um, through the individual stories. My mother made a um, pie chart for me when I was a kid. She took, oh, really? she took a plate, yeah, and That's awesome. drew out, you know, everything. But that could be really helpful. It was because as a kid, you just like, I mean, you, first of all, you don't understand fractions to begin with. and right. I mean, you know, my uh, my side is complicated. Like it's like both my grandmas are white, both, you know, and on the right. on the Mexican side, we can trace things back through Cuba and Spain and so like are, what yeah, is there if there's native blood involved, like how do you I don't know, it's yeah, it's very um my parents used to say cream and coffee, which is like <laughs> so terrible. I, I <laughs> But the cream disappears in the coffee. <laughs> no, right. Oh. Which is like my dad. Well, the cream changes the coffee. Yeah. My, my Indian grandfather, because I'm much lighter skinned than my brother, he used to say, white people like brown bread and brown people like white bread. I don't know what happened to your parents, but somehow the bread got mushed together. <laughs> That's what? pretty awesome. See, those are the stories. Those are the things that make the Hopper Project come to life are stories like that. Because it's so weird and it's so funny and it's so wrong, but and yet so right. Right. I know. Like, I feel like what Kamala is doing for those of us in the Indian community is like opening up the visibility of being part Indian because that is just so not like we have light years right. to go. And when I was growing up, there was nobody like me. And now being here in the Bay Area and, you know, you go to Silicon Valley, there's all kinds of Indian engineers marrying white women. Um, and, right. and I see kids at my kids school and I'm like, Oh my God, like, can I, hello, can I hold you? Can I like be your friend? I'm just this weird lady who's the same mix as you, but I didn't know anybody like you growing up. So could, <laughs> could you like have a play date with my kid? I mean, it's that weird, you know, but, um, <laughs> but. Can I please, can I please console my younger self by holding yes, you? Yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> Maybe it's just the, like getting in touch with the pain of feeling outside or something. Well, that's because you realize that you're not the only person that's felt this way is the way I look at it. so great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. That was really fun. It was like, I think that's the funnest interview I ever did, so I appreciate that. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> that was artist Kip Fulbeck. He's a professor at UC Santa Barbara. And you can check out his work on the Hoppa Project at hoppa.me. I was reading about this mixed Iranian um, journalist who was saying how her mixed experience was a lot like floating. It's kind of cool because your ambiguous skin means that you're accepted in different groups and different ethnicities and you get to experience that diversity. But there's also negatives to that. Because you're ambiguous, 
people are going to assign stereotypes based on what they think you are and you don't have control over that. I love being mixed. I love dancing between the lines of the binaries that this society has built up. As a mixed kid, in a way, I represent the breaking of cultural and institutional barriers that exist or existed. But breaking down barriers may just be a poetic way of saying you're being slammed into a wall. And that's certainly what it sometimes felt like growing up mixed. love getting these voicemails from our listeners. I mean, one thing that's so clear is those of us who are mixed do share a common experience of, you know, feeling like outsiders in a lot of different contexts. Right. It's this, like this dichotomy of feeling both a kinship, but also an individualism, a, a loneliness almost. Within that, though, we also have to be really aware of the fact that what the mix is matters. Mm-hmm. If you have a white parent versus a black parent, it can really change the equation and even within a family. So with that in mind, we're going to hear next from two women who share a similar heritage. Their dads are black and their moms are Asian, in their case, Filipina. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting as you hear this conversation is, you know, you you hear a lot about how colorism and frankly, anti-blackness can play out in mixed families and in immigrant families. Camille Sieberling is a mom of two sons. She's also a business owner in San Francisco, where she grew up. And Katrina Bullock is a student at UC Berkeley. She grew up in Santa Clarita, a suburb of outside of Los Angeles. She helps run a program called Mixed at Berkeley, which aims to support mixed-race students who are the first in their families going to college. So I think we kind of thought we might open this up with like the most annoying question that people get asked, which is, what are you? Um, (laughs) (laughs) The question we all hate. (laughs) I am an Aries. Um, I am black and Filipino. I'm a woman. Uh, I identify as a lot of things, a multifaceted person. Um, That question is definitely interesting when I get asked it. I like to kind of give people a little bit more of my personality. I'll be like, oh, I'm funny or I'm cool or things like that, just so they have to really explicitly ask, what is your ethnic or racial background? I'm 48, and I've gotten that question for, you know, a long time. And when I was younger, it was awkward. I didn't like to – I basically sometimes it depended on who who was asking the question. And I think that if it was somebody who was – uh, white. I, I don't know. Like I would, I would be more a little bit, um, curious about why they're asking that question. Um, someone who's Filipino too, or, um, African American or who mixed themselves. Um, I would get what they're trying to figure out and it wouldn't bother me as much. Yeah. I feel like it really depends on who I'm interacting with and like how they construct race by like their experiences. I find like in Santa Clarita, which is a predominantly white community, the people there have a very narrow perception of blackness. So when they see me, it's very much like I am the tokenized black person. Like I'm the representative of the black community. Whereas when I interact with people who are in more multicultural spaces or have like a broadened view of the Black community, they will identify that I am mixed and treat me differently. So you can hear there, you know, Camille and Katrina on paper have very similar backgrounds, but you already can start hearing a difference in the way they talk about this, the language they're using. And I think a lot of that has to do with their age difference. 
Yeah, I mean, Katrina is a younger generation. Camille grew up in the 70s in San Francisco when things were really different. You know, being mixed, I didn't, I never really felt that people thought I was was African-American. Because, you know, I was an actress for a while. So, you know, I went to school and I was going out for parts and they always wanted me to be um, Latina. When I went to Vietnam, they thought I was Vietnamese. When I went to Morocco, they thought I was Moroccan. <laughs> and that, but when I went to like uh, Costa Rica and we were at the airport, this uh, woman, because she thought I was Latina and I couldn't speak Spanish. <laughs> and I remember her kind of, it just felt like she was a little upset, like I wasn't trying to speak Spanish. It just depends on who it is. <laughs> Racially, I think I present as Black, depending on who you're talking to, I guess. Um, but culturally, I feel like I still hold Filipino um, traditions and practices. So growing up in a suburban community that's majority white, a lot of people have these racial assumptions like at the get-go and they see one black person because there's not that many black people in my suburban city. And so they see me and they're like, okay, she knows everything. I bet she can rap all the Drake songs that he has <laughs> produced, like things like that. <laughs> So one of like the first like racialized experiences I remember having was uh, in my elementary school. And I went to um, a school where there was a large Filipino population. And I had a classmate who was Filipino and like our moms were friends, we were family friends. And we were on the playground playing tag. And I was it and I tagged him. And I'm sure I said something a little bit arrogant, like, haha, I got you. And he turned around, he was like, well, at least I'm not black. Mm -hmm. And like, that was when my racial perception of the world completely changed because I went home with lots of questions. Like, yes, I am black, but that was the first time it was talked to me in a negative way in like my personal experience. Katrina says her parents never really talked to her about America's racist history. But after that incident, she went home and talked to her dad. My dad, he told me that he was just like, well, she is black. Like, that's just something that she's going to learn. And this is like, that was just my first experience understanding, like, the aggression that I will face because I'm black. Um, and then from that moment forward, I think my dad made it a really strong point in our household for me to know my black history. We watched a lot of movies about black history. So I have to stand here today as what I was when I was born. A black man. I think the first one that was shocking to me was um, Malcolm X, like Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Before there was any such place as America, we were black. Right. And after America has long passed from the scene, there will still be black people. I didn't have that, not only because my parents separated, but because they didn't talk about you know, our history or what they even felt about it. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with coming out of the 60s and civil rights and all the stuff that my dad struggling, but also because I feel like he, if he was there if, more, then I could talk to him about my feelings and get more information about how he was feeling about things. But I just had my mom's perspective, really. So I had to navigate th these things myself. And then as I got older and I had my own friends, uh, my own black friends, you know, um, and that's where I, I really understood uh, some of the things, the struggles of black people. I was born in the 70s. My dad, his family came from, you know, the south to the um, Hunters Point shipyard. So they were poor. It was hard. So I remember when he even found out um, when I was starting to tell him about, hey, you know, this Obama's going to be president. He was like, no. That's not going to happen. In his lifetime, I mean, 
that, that would never happen. He didn't believe me. And he died not very long after that. You know, my, my mom, my dad, when they were together, um, you know, they owned a record store um, in Ghirardelli, which was one of the first black businesses. There was a song called, um, you're a big girl. I, I can sing it. it goes, you're a big girl now. No more daddy's little girl. <laughs> that was just my favorite song. Yeah. stylistics it was a song my dad used to play and um i just remember loving that song it was like our song <laughs> so both camille and katrina talk a lot about their relationship with their dads but when it comes to their moms the thing that comes up is their relationship with their hair Once I hit middle school, I think that's when my mom kind of gave me control over my hair and was like, now you start, you know, forming your own independence. And then once I had control over my own hair, I had a lot of white peers who were straightening their hair. And so, you know, I just adopted that and straightened my hair until probably like the middle of high school. Once I got to Berkeley, actually, um, my club mixed at Berkeley, they have a program and it's called the Curly Hair Chronicles, where basically people just talk about their curly hair experiences and how to properly deal with curly and textured hair. Yeah, that's good. That's I, <laughs> I wish I had that. <laughs> when One thing that's good is that my mom didn't chemically straighten me and my sister's hair. And I always say how it's it looks like if I had it down, it's like Shaka Khan hair. But I always wear it up back from my face. And um, I think it's because of the tension I got, not wanting that attention. That attention can be really complicated. I got attention for Shaka Khan hair. I didn't even know what that meant as a kid. But there's also this other side to it, which it can lead to fetishization, exotification, that's really uncomfortable as a mixed woman. When I went to private schools, you know, I was objectified sort of I got a lot of attention <laughs> for being mixed or not white. Mixed people are obviously fetishized and that is, you know, I believe a tool of like white supremacy to keep us kind of subjugated and not thinking about like the racial hierarchy and like why has our idea of beauty been shaped around being ethnically ambiguous? Yeah, my mom actually doesn't talk about race as much as my dad did. Um, like just recently, we had a conversation about colorism. And I was just telling her, like, in Black communities, I benefit from colorism. But in Filipino communities, I'm more like the victim of colorism. And growing up in Filipino communities, it was like, you need to have whitening lotion and you need to like pin your nose together so it doesn't look so wide. And so it's just different. When my mom decided to be with my dad, there were there were racist uh, comments. I think my grandmother, my dad not always being there and you know taking care of us, her stereotypes came true, um, were reinforced. I think in some way. Um, and growing up near Chinatown, um, even when my dad would come when I was very young, I remember the store down the street um, was owned by a Chinese couple, and remember they used to always kind of be afraid of my dad coming in, <laughs> like he was going to do something. So I grew up with those things, you know, they felt very 
familiar <laughs> to me. We're talking about um, anti-blackness in yeah. Filipino communities. Yeah. Um, in the Philippines, especially, um, when my dad first was living out there, it was like the early 90s, and he was like 5'10". Loki looked like Carlton from uh, <laughs> Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> he would be walking around Manila and people would think he's a basketball player just because he's black. And he's only 5'10", like, you know? Um, <laughs> I, I could never find someone exactly... Like, I know there are black and Filipino girls like Katrina, but I didn't have that growing up. There was mostly black and white women or mixed people that I grew up around. So I was really unique in my, and I still am actually, in my group of friends. Yeah, I think that we really all find like a collective identity in this feeling of never fitting in or never feeling like you're fully anything. Um, and then when you find a space with like other mixed people who feel the same way, then you kind of take a step back and realize, oh wait, I am a full person. Like I can be fully black and fully Filipino. Like I can just be truly me without having to deal with other people's, you know, opinions on like what my racial makeup is and like what that says about me. It's just truly like who I am. I think that right now, um, the next generation is, you know, looking at this st stuff and talking about it more because there was more of us. So when I hear Katrina, I, I feel that. <laughs> With Kamala Harris in office and like people are really talking about her mixed identity and it's like just 13 years ago, Barack Obama was president and like no one ever talked about him from a mixed perspective. It was just from a black perspective. But, you know, I guess us as a society, thankfully, have progressed enough to value all parts of somebody's identity. Personally, for from a representation standpoint, I'm like, if I was a little girl and I saw Kamala Harris in office, I would be like, wow, I can really do anything. Like there is somebody who is black and is Asian in office and like she is treated as such. She's not just, she's not ignoring either part of her identity. Camille, I, thank you so much for sharing your story. I absolutely love talking to people who are of the same mix because I think it just showcases how diverse the mixed community is that like, we come from the same racial background. Our parents are of the same like race, but we have such, you know, different experiences growing up in different parts of the state um, during a different era. I'm so glad to to hear, um, you know, uh, the younger generation forming these clubs and just to meet you. It's good to see us being recognized more. When we first got on and Katrina said she, she had for breakfast um, garlic fried rice, I was like, that's Filipino, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so, so you relate to that stuff, you know, and I, it just feels good. <laughs> That conversation was the start of a friendship. Camille Sieberling and Katrina Bullock actually became friends and Camille now calls Katrina her little sister. I love that. And Marisa and I are gonna collaborate on a few more episodes where we're gonna look at how some of these questions about race, identity, and community have played out in California history. So stay tuned for those. I'm Sasha Coca. And I'm Marisa Lagos. The California Report Magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleone. This episode was sound designed and produced by Amanda Font. Hector Arzate, Lena Blanco, and Carly Severn helped with our listener call-out. 
And thanks to those listeners whose stories you heard in this episode. My name is Dylan Morimoto. My name is Diana K. Batista. I'm Ruben Villarreal Hopper. Hi, my name is Steven Zendeja. My name is Adrian Colon. And special thanks to the LA Times podcast Asian Enough for sharing their tape of Kamala Harris. Brendan Willard is our audio engineer, and our team also includes Susie Racho and Lisa Morehouse. This episode also featured original music by Bongo Sidibe. And you heard his daughter, Sumaya, in this episode. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast. And I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 